Okay, as we are now in message nine in the book of Hebrews. Can you hear me okay? I forgot my other microphone. Um, we start out here in verse 11. If you remember in chapter 4, the author had talked about those who believe God, believe Christ, ultimately have their rest in God. They end up in eternal life. But those who disobey and do not believe do not enter that sacred rest of God. And he gave the example of how most of the Israelites, though they crossed the Red Sea, perished in the wilderness and did not enter the promised land because of sin, disobedience, and unbelief. Now, verse 11 says this again. Yes, the same outline I preach from. So, the author reminds us to be diligent to enter the rest of God, to obey Christ, keep His commandments, to live by faith, lest in the end we're shown to be perhaps a false convert or even an apostate who never knew Christ. So this warning is repeated. Lest anyone fall because of disobedience. So that's a challenge for us as those who profess Christ. How do I live? Who do I serve? Who do I obey? And what do I believe? You see, Israel saw mighty works of God. I mean, think about it. If you saw the Red Sea open up, and you crossed, and Egypt didn't, wouldn't that impress you about the power of God? If you saw God feed you manna for years, wouldn't you trust God? But we know Israel turned away in idolatry and immorality and disbelief and grumbling. 
And the New Testament reminds us that this is an example to us to set our face on Jesus Christ and his gospel, to listen to his word, believe his promises, and not live like Israel. Because the writer reminds us in chapter 4 that God was displeased with them and swore they would not enter his rest. Now we read 1 Corinthians 3 and 11 to help us to be reminded that there is a judgment for all people, including believers. And chapter 3 says that everything will be tested by fire. Gold, silver, precious metals, our fruit of obedience remains. Our fruits of sinfulness would and straw and stubble get burned up. But for the Christian who has a foundation in Christ, he does not perish. Though that edifice he built on the foundation may be burned up. But that's a stern warning to us that even Christians are judged because Christ must remove the presence of sin for all eternity. It's not an easy time, but our foundation is sure. And we're told in chapter 11, if we were to judge ourselves or examine ourselves, there are several verbs there, all based on the same Greek word of krino, judgment. If we judge ourselves, if we examine ourselves and live in repentance, then God, our Father, doesn't have to chastise or discipline ourselves. So it's basically saying, if you judge yourself, God your Father won't judge you in discipline. And if you judge yourself, you will not be judged as the world is in condemnation. So we must take this to heart to live as one who confesses our sin and goes back and claims the gospel that 
no matter how great our sins, the gospel of grace is greater. So, Israel did not do that. They did not judge themselves rightly and suffered the judgment of God. Now I point that out because verse 13 reminds us that every person, every creature will stand accountable for before the true and living God. We all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. We all stand before the great white throne. The question is, are we covered in the righteousness of Jesus? Or like most people who will say, I was pretty good. And God will have none of that. Because in our own natural state, we fall short of God's standard and God's glory. So keep that in mind. I'll comment a little bit more. Verse 13. But the author now tells us the second point, my outline, about the powerful word of God. Notice that he says, the word of God is living and powerful sharper than a two-edged sword. Brothers and sisters, this Bible, this book you have, these 66 books in one volume, do you realize what you have is this great treasure, the living powerful, inspired, inerrant, unchanging Word of God. There are many religious texts, but there is only one Word of God. And we have been given by revelation, by the Spirit, God moved holy men to write down what He wanted us to know. Do you treasure it? Again, there are writings of Confucius of Buddha. There's writings of Muhammad. I would argue they are not 
the living, powerful, active Word of God. They may have some grains of truth, some insight, but the Scriptures tell us this Bible is given by God, profitable for correction, training, righteousness, equipping us to bear fruit. Do you treasure it? Do you read it? Do you carry it? Do you share it? There are still thousands of language groups in the world today who have not a single portion of this word in their language. For hundreds of years, it wasn't in our language. Thank God for faithful men and women who have translated it into common languages that we might benefit by being able to read it, memorize it, study it, apply it. Now, let's unpack this verse for a second. This is not a dead book. It's alive because it's from the Spirit of God. And I also want you to remember there's another word. There's the living Word of God that exists as the person of Jesus Christ. First, or excuse me, John chapter 1 says, In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God face to face. And the Word was the same essence as God the Father. The Word was God. That's Jesus the Son of God, called the Word, the Living Word. And that Word, by God's grace, verse 14 says, became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, as of the glory from God. Brothers, sister, we have the living Word of God. We are united to Jesus, the Messiah, the prophet, the priest, the king. By faith, Scripture says nothing in heaven or earth can separate you from Jesus Christ. So you have access 
to the very great prophet of God promised by Moses in Deuteronomy the word the Christ and you also have the written word of God revealed written down for us praise God in our natural tongue now the writer says this word is living it's not a dead book myths stories fables it's a historical record of God's work of how God created of how God promised the Redeemer it's a story from Genesis to Revelation of redemption the world scoffs the world makes fun of it all oh, that was a book for people years ago it means nothing the modern man but this is the Word of God that can fix people of sin of a lack of righteousness of the judgment of God when this word is witnessed and preached by God's Spirit men and women teenagers and children are convicted will repent and will call upon the name of Christ to be saved that's Romans 10 because this word again it's not just dead stories made up fables this is the word from the living and true triune God it also says it's powerful it's not dull it's not ineffective Isaiah 55 said if you remember that the Word of God never returns void it always produces the effect that the sovereign Lord wants sometimes it hardens the hearts of unbelievers like as God hardened Pharaoh sometimes praise God it's used to bring someone to repentance and faith but it's never neutral it always 
has an effect. It's powerful because it's the Word of God and God is alive. God's not dead. The philosophers were wrong. God is eternal. His words are eternal. Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words shall not. So take comfort, be encouraged. The world might be skeptics, but this word is powerful, effective to your salvation, to your discipleship. To your growth. It has promises that are sure in Christ. When we read this book, we read that God is the victor and God finishes his plan. And God the Father and Christ the Son lose not one of his people. Do you believe this powerful word of God? It's living, it's powerful. The writer says, this word of God is like the sharpest sword, a two-edged sword sharp on both edges. Now, there are some swords that are sharp on one edge. There are some swords that are sharp only on the point. Both of those can maim and inflict damage and kill somebody. But the writer is reminded the Roman soldier carried a two-edged sword that you inflict damage from swinging in any direction. That's the deadliest sword. <coughs> He says, this word of God is that deadly, sharp sword. And what does it do? It pierces even to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, a discerner of thoughts and intents of the heart. Dead Religious Books by Charles Russell, Mary Baker Eddy, Joseph Smith, The Book of Mormon, The Koran. Again, might have a little bit of truth, but they do not do what this book and this word can do.
dig deep into our hearts and our minds and our conscience to convict, to change, to build. Sometimes we don't like that, do we? Sometimes we want to think, I don't like that verse I just read. It's too convicting. Did you ever feel that way? There's a famous British actor. I won't say his name. He's called a sir, a knight. When he goes into hotel rooms and he sees the Gideon Bible because he's a blatant practicing homosexual he tears Leviticus 18 out and throws it in the trash because the word of God tells us there are things to do there are things not to do there are things that are sinful and there are things we should pay attention to as Mark read from the Ten Commandments there are things to do and there are things not to do and the world doesn't like the Ten Commandments how much better would our society be if people kept the Sabbath day holy? If people were not idolaters? If people honored their parents? If people did not commit adultery or steal or lie? or kill, or covet. But the world hates that, doesn't it? Don't put those commandments up in a public space. Don't teach them to our children. Why? Because the Word of God gets to our very heart, which Jesus said is the source of much evil. Now, he says here, it divides even the soul and spirit. I can't solve this theological debate today. But theologians want to argue that man have three parts or two parts? Does he have a body? and a soul, or body, soul, and spirit. It seems to say there's a soul and spirit here. But what I want you to see, that we have a physical side called a body, and we have a non-material, non-physical side 
soul. And the Greek word here is pneuma, that we get breath from, like pneumonia. Pneuma, another word for lungs. So we have the body, yes, but we also have this non-material, spiritual side that concludes our breath and that eternal soul. Our body will one day die unless we're taken up in Christ's return. That body will be resurrected, praise God. But that non-material soul will live forever, either in the presence of God in glory or to be condemned to judgment in hell. But who can, who can speak to the soul? Who can speak to our heart? You know, you could give good advice to someone, to your children, to a friend, and they brush it off. You and I can't change a human heart, but God's Spirit, God's Christ, through this Word, can and does. And God's Word, again, when it's witnessed of, when it's preached, changes disciples of Christ and takes those who are not in Christ and brings them to faith. This is a powerful word. Uh, notice that God's Spirit, God using this word, discerns our thoughts and the intents of our hearts. Do you want everybody to know your thoughts and desires? No, because they're pretty sinful sometimes, aren't they? We might put a smile on our face and speak politely, but we could be very angry and vengeful towards somebody and wish evil. But God and the Spirit use the Word of God to look at our thoughts and our intents. We may do something good, but what was our intent? 
what was our motive? James says, you might ask of God, but you don't get it because your motives were wrong. Your motives were selfish. Praise God, brothers and sisters. God's word helps us not only to think, but our words and our deeds. But what's our intent? What's my motive? What am I really thinking about? Because we're told, set your heart, set your mind on the things above. Because you're united to the resurrected Christ. It's a scary thing. But brothers and sisters, it's a good thing that the Spirit doesn't leave us in sin patterns. But He challenges our thoughts, our words, our deeds, our desires, so that we might be more Christ-like. We might bear the fruit of the Spirit, not the deeds of the flesh. And lastly, in verse 13, the author reminds us that God knows about every human being and every creature will be judged and stand before God. No man, no woman can hide from the eternal, all-knowing, all-powerful God. In the day of judgment, we won't say anything. People argue, when I stand before God, I'm going to argue my case. Sigmund Freud said, when I die, I will stand before God and ask God, why did children die of cancer? You are not just. That's foolishness. When we die, the scripture says, it is appointed once to die and stand before God in judgment. And there is that final judgment in Revelation where Satan and his minions and the wicked are judged to damnation. And our pastor last week reminded us that God's good angels participate in that to throw the wicked into hell. 
every man, every woman, no matter of race or age or social status or morality are stood naked before God. So again, it's best that the Word of God, Spirit of God, judge us now. Like 1 Corinthians 11. So we judge ourselves rightly. Live in repentance and faith. Otherwise, if we claim our goodness, our righteousness, we stand condemned in our sin. We all cannot get away from the presence of a good but merciful, all-knowing God. I'm reminded that Adam and Eve thought they could hide from God and cover their nakedness. God said, who told you you were naked? You disobeyed, didn't you? And God covered them properly. Achan thought he could get away when he kept some of the plunder and stuff. But God knew there was disobedience in the camp. The Israelites put up a golden calf. God told Moses, get down to those people. Look what they've done. He knew. Saul thought he could get away and keep the spoils. And God said, Samuel. And Samuel said, what's the bleeding of the sheep and the mooing of the cattle? David thought he got away. And God said, Nathan, to say, you committed adultery and you killed. We can't get away from the Word of God and the Spirit of God. So let's not deceive ourselves and be foolish. That's falling. Because it's living, it's powerful, it's active, it's sharp. But it's good. Couple action points. I'd like you to read Hebrews 5 and 6 for my next sermon in a few weeks. Second point, this is a call to Christians to continue daily. Live in repentance and faith. Let the Spirit of God show you what you need to be changed of. To search you. To examine you. And not 
stay in sin and drift away from Christ. Third point, the Word of God is a treasure. Treasure this this book. It's profitable. It's the only rule given to us for faith and practice. We need to read it, study it, memorize it, think on it, apply it. Mary of Bethany was just an average woman. But what did she want? She wanted to sit at the feet of the living word. Her sister says, Hey, come help me with the provisions. No, I want to stay with Christ and hear what he has to say. We should be the same way. Let's abide with Christ. Jesus said in Revelation 3 to his people, I stand at the door and knock. If you open the door, I'll come in and sit and fellowship with you. That's the living word to his people. That's not an evangelistic verse to the lost. That's a verse of comfort and fellowship of his sheep to the good shepherd. Do you want to talk with Jesus? Or do you think Jesus is like some crazy distant relative I put over in the corner that's abide with Christ and his word. John 15 said, if you abide with me, my words abide with you, you will bear much fruit. And lastly, this word of God, living, powerful, sharp, must be preached and witnessed of to a lost world around us. They will not find life anywhere else. There's nothing that will show them the depths of their sin, the wickedness of their heart, their wicked record, their wicked, idolatrous life, but the word of God. But how should they hear? And how should it be preached? And how shall it be preached? And how the preacher goes? That might be just one-on-one witness. It might mean preaching from the pulpit or the open air. But let us take this word to the world. In John 6, a bunch of people did not like 
Jesus hard words and got up and left and Jesus said to the twelve you're gonna go too and Peter speaks brash Peter Lord to whom shall we go you have the words of eternal life we have come to believe you are the son of the true and loving God. Peter wasn't stupid. He knew something of Greco-Roman words and ways and philosophy. He knew something of Judaism and perhaps, perhaps Eastern, Middle Eastern practices. And he could think through, wait a minute, those things are not words of eternal life. Jesus, where shall we go? You and you alone have life. Brothers and sisters, treasure this word. I gave you a hand up. Just give you some ideas about daily Bible reading. May I suggest, if you do nothing else, read the Psalms for worship. If you read three Psalms, you'll go through all 150 in one month. Read the book of Proverbs according to the calendar day. The days of February 6th, read chapter 6. At the end of the month, you might have to read a couple chapters. But read, you can read through Proverbs 12 times a year. And I would encourage you to read three chapters of the Gospels every day, 89 chapters. You go through the Gospels three times, four times a year, once a quarter. And I say that so that to know Christ, your Savior, your Lord, your prophet, your priest, your king, your elder brother, to know this living word better is to read the life story, the gospel accounts of his person and work. Those are just suggestions. There are other ways to read scripture, but Let's do that this year. Father in heaven, thank you for this short passage. Thank you that you remind us to live in repentance and faith. Thank you for giving us Christ, the living word, the Messiah, 
Thank you. Our sins are forgiven. We have righteousness. And we have the Word of God to teach us, train us, guide us, instruct us. May we read and believe its promises and trust its wisdom and truth. Amen.